Oops, the podcast episode four, intro to Ruby. The Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. The Oopsla Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and with Dibsum Thinking. I'm Daniel Steinberg, your host for this episode. On the telephone, it's Glenn Vandenberg. Glenn is one of many programmers who's changed from doing most of his work in Java to using Ruby as his go-to programming language. We talked about some of the advantages of Ruby and some of the aspects that will feel odd and perhaps dangerous to a Java or C++ programmer. Glenn is offering an introduction to Ruby tutorial at Oopsla 2007. My name is Glenn Vanderberg. I am a programmer, software developer, consultant. Uh, for the past year and a half, I've been uh, independent, but I've just sort of hung up that hat to join a company called Relevance uh, that I've been doing some work for for uh, a couple of years. Uh, We specialize in agile practices, agile tools, agile languages, and we're especially fond of Ruby. There's increasing interest in agile software development and, and, and agile practices, and in my mind, a more realistic approach to getting software done and getting it done right and on time and on budget. And I think that's what Agile software development is all about. Ruby's a really good fit for that. There are some things in Ruby that are perceived as a bit dangerous or risky or loose, but in the context of Agile practices that have an emphasis on good design and continuous good design, not just design up front and then the the typical cycle of decay. And also, they emphasize testing. In in that context, the things that seem risky about Ruby uh, to people from a more traditional software development background turn out to be real strengths. People from a static typing background, and that includes me, uh, I I looked at Ruby kind of askance for a little while. And and when I first uh, encountered it for the same reasons, it, it there are a lot of errors that languages like Java and C++ will catch for you um, because they're typing errors and they, they are caught at compile time. And uh, those things in a, a language like Ruby won't be caught uh, by the compiler. There, there is no compiler. They'll be caught at runtime. And uh, that seems like throwing away a very useful kind of test that the language can do for you. On the other hand, there's a lot less to type in Ruby. Yesterday, the UPS man came with my copy of a book I've been waiting for for a long time called Beautiful Code. There's an essay in there by two of the people that are responsible for the Perforce version control software. And one of the points they make is that uh, programmers are always having to read code outside of syntax coloring editors and IDEs. Uh, in diff tools and uh, version control systems and debuggers and things like that where you don't have as much help. And it's a really useful skill to be able to read code that way, but also to take care to write code so that it's readable uh, on its own and not just uh, in, in the context of an IDE that's giving you a lot of assistance. And I guess I'm just quite sympathetic to that view. I've found that uh, uh, writing Ruby code in 
a good editor like TextMate that gives you a lot of generalized editing help, but not not nearly as much specialized help as we've grown accustomed to from Eclipse and IntelliJ, uh, just seems to work really fine. Another objection I've, I've heard about Ruby is uh, it's very dynamic and open, not just in the typing sense, but uh, you can open up classes from outside and add new methods or even change existing methods. And that applies even to the core classes of Ruby. And people who have uh, been burned by, for example, people abusing C++'s operator overloading support are worried that this will make it possible to write code that is just completely impenetrable and, and from reading it you can't really understand what it's doing. And I agree that that's possible to do, but uh, in the context of a well-run team using agile practices and where you have a lot of eyes on the code and a lot of input into design, in my experience it simply doesn't happen. At Oopsal this year, I'm giving a tutorial on Ruby, and it's just an introduction to Ruby. It's a, a half-day tutorial that's introduction to Ruby. There are a lot of people interested in Ruby and a lot of people that uh, uh, are interested but don't really have any exposure to it. And we're starting to see Ruby kind of become a uh, uh, almost a lingua franca for people who are uh, talking about algorithms and, and uh, object-oriented design in much the same way that Java was in the late 90s. Uh, my audience is typically uh, developers who have some experience with a, a really mainstream object-oriented language, uh, especially Java, because that's the, the dominant language in the industry right now. Ruby borrows a lot from uh, many languages, and uh, people who have experience with Perl will get, out, get a lot out of my tutorial because I, I call out some of the... Uh, things that Ruby's borrowed from Perl and also explain why <clears throat> perhaps Ruby does it a little better. But people with uh, experience with any modern object-oriented language, including uh, Smalltalk or Python, I think would get a lot out of it. Uh, there, there are really few, if any, original ideas in Ruby. Uh, it's just you know a lot of old ideas put together in an extremely tasteful way. Uh, Smalltalk had those open classes. And... In fact, they did occasionally turn out to cause some problems. Uh, Ward Cunningham, for example, a very well-known small talker from, from way back, uh, has said that you know, one of the problems with small talk is that it's just really easy to make a mess, and, and I think that's part of it. But at the same time, uh, small talk had the open classes, and uh, it also had the image where... Uh, your, your program existed as live objects in an image that evolved over time. And that, uh, to me at least, I've never had a lot of experience with, with Smalltalk, but uh, to me, that makes it a little, little harder to analyze exactly what you've got uh, in a system. And uh, I've talked with Smalltalkers who've experienced that. Ruby has a lot of the same kind of freedom but you always start with a clean slate and load source code into the, the Ruby interpreter. And, and being able to look at that source code and, and search through it and analyze it, um, at least for me, uh, in, in files on disk, uh, makes that a much more tractable problem. 
you can augment the meaning of a class, but you don't want to change the basic semantics of it. Rails is a good example. Rails, uh, the Rails web framework in Ruby, adds a lot of functionality to the core classes of Ruby, including integers and strings and, and uh, the real fundamental objects. But it always does it in a way that um, either sits nicely alongside the existing behavior or adds some semantics but doesn't change the basic semantics. Uh, augmenting integer with methods like days and hours so that you can say two dot hours dot ago and uh, use, uh, starting with integers, use them to express time and intervals and things like that. That turns out to be tremendously useful. It's, it sounds a little scary because you're modifying the behavior of integer, but you're augmenting it. You're not, uh, uh, not changing any of the basic behavior of integer. And uh, I'm not aware of anybody in the Rails community that has had any real problem with that being there. Now, having said that, it's certainly possible to go too far with something like that. And, uh, and I've seen examples where people have gone too far. But a lot of what we're talking about with Ruby is the same kinds of things that uh, the aspect-oriented programming community has been uh, suggesting for Java, ways of augmenting or changing the behavior of classes from outside. And it's no more or less dangerous in Ruby than it is in Java using Aspect J or one of the other aspect-oriented uh, frameworks. In a language like Java, doing aspect-oriented kinds of things is hard and arcane because it's a separate facility. And in Ruby, really, as soon as you realize that classes are objects just like anything else, metaprogramming and the kinds of things that aspect-oriented programming gives you in Java, um, they're done with the exact same programming facilities that you use for all of your programming. And that makes them much easier to understand and much easier for the non-experts to start gaining the advantage of. So I've had this long-running argument with Ted Neward. His position is that metaprogramming is only for experts. It's just way too complicated for the average programmer to do. But I think it's because his exposure to metaprogramming is Aspect J. In, in Ruby, I've seen very average programmers, once they grok that you know classes are objects just like anything else, and you can modify them at runtime, um, really kind of joyfully, without understanding the sophistication of what they're doing, start doing metaprogramming. And... and adapting the language to their needs. Um, in Ruby, the style of work is very experimental. Most Ruby programmers have a Ruby interpreter loaded in a, a terminal window alongside uh, in much the same way that um, in Eclipse, for example, you can create a workspace where you can just type in Java code and watch how it works and, and work in an experimental style. It's just that in Java, very few programmers work that way, and in Ruby, almost all of us do. And we're frequently popping over and trying out things to see how they work. And that's, uh, that's just a slightly less formal uh, way of doing 
of using unit tests and, and test-driven development to uh, really validate what you're doing as you go rather than uh, writing it with syntax and uh, syntax checking by the IDE uh, helping you along the way and then really validating it uh, at a later state when you, when you get around to compiling and running it. Languages have, have cultures along with them, and, and those cultures grow up to uh, work with the strengths of a language and avoid their weaknesses. Um, there, there's no perfect language that has the right answer to every programming problem or every difficulty in the programming task. They all have strengths and weaknesses. And in the same way that, um, for example, programming style differs from language to language, the practices of working with code vary from language to language. And again, it's tailored to exploit the language's strengths and keep you from running afoul of the language's weaknesses. And Ruby definitely has a culture like that. If you approach Ruby and try to write it uh, like Java, like you write Java, you will run into some problems. But uh, if you uh, start learning how good Ruby programmers work, I think you'll find uh, that it's a very pleasant environment. People coming into Ruby have a lot of good examples to choose from. And the fact that uh, Ruby is uh, an interpreted language, a runtime interpreted language, means that uh, everything you get in Ruby, every library, every uh, uh, gem, every, every add-on package, or every application and tool uh, comes in source code form that you can read. And there are a few that are great to read. Rails itself is a good place to start. Uh, it's, it's a little big. When I'm working in Rails, I have, uh, I have a TextMate project that is loaded up with the entire source code to Rails. That makes it very easy for me to do global searches across the Rails source base and find where things are implemented and, and dive in and learn more about them. This same thing has always been possible in the Java world. Um, the JDK comes with the source code to the core libraries. But I found that in the Java world, very few programmers ever unjar that, that bundle of uh, core library source code and really go into it whereas in the Ruby world, I think most of us do. If you're looking for a good batch of code to read that's maybe not as uh, huge and overwhelming as Rails, but is nevertheless a good example of Ruby programming style and how good Rubyists get things done, I would suggest reading the source code to Jim Wyrick's uh, Rake, which is basically the Ruby world's equivalent of Ant or Make, the way we build and deploy and run tests and just automate tasks on our projects. Rake is a stunning example of really good Ruby code, and it's not very big, but it does a whole lot. And it's, it's a good thing to read to learn how good Rubyists get things done. Uh, Ruby is nearly as old as Java, uh, but it really sort of... Uh, uh, evolved in relative obscurity with a community that didn't care that much about backwards compatibility up until 2003 or so. Uh, so it was nearly 10 years old uh, before it really started uh, seeing the limelight.
and uh, that's been a huge advantage, and it allowed Ruby to evolve and, and throw away some things that uh, uh, really weren't very good ideas uh, before it reached an age and a level of popularity where it's more difficult to change. There are still some things there that I, I don't like very much. In fact, and this is... Uh, Java programmers will, will recognize this lament. I think the I.O. libraries in Ruby leave a lot to be desired. They're not as bad as the original Java I.O. libraries, but um, I, I still find them awkward to use. And uh, it's a shame that something so fundamental uh, isn't quite right. But uh, by and large, Ruby had a great chance to mature before it had to slow down and, and stop evolving so much. I think that's a big advantage. Oopsla was how I got involved in Ruby. I, I knew Dave Thomas, and he had told me that he and Andy were working on a book about Ruby. Then the first edition of the Pickaxe book was released at Oopsla in Tampa. I was there you know, the morning the bookstore opened and bought one of the first few copies of the Pickaxe book that were ever sold, and that's what got me hooked on Ruby right from the very start. I would have expected Oopsla to latch on to Ruby a lot more than it did. You know, Oopsla, uh, for many years, was the place where adventurous, cutting-edge research, not necessarily just object-oriented, although that's part of the name of the conference, but uh, really uh, interesting and, and inventive, cutting-edge research in how we program uh, was going on at Oopsla for a long time. There was a period during the uh, the heyday of Java when uh, it, it really looked like Java was taking over the world, where where that kind of stopped for a while. Uh, but um, Oops was getting inventive again and and uh, looking forward and and beyond the sort of safe research topics, really trying to push the envelope again, and and that's made it a, a wonderful place to investigate. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to claim that Ruby is cutting edge, but uh, the, the horizon is broadening again, and I think that's great. It's, uh, it's much more like the conference that uh, I loved so much in the, the mid-90s. I'm excited about going to Montreal for Uppsala this year. I always love uh, traveling to Canada, although October's maybe not the best time, but... Uh, uh, Oopla is a great conference. I had to miss it last year, and I was really disappointed. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I'll be there this year. It's going to be a fun way to spend a week in October. Glenn Vandenberg. He'll be offering a tutorial introduction to Ruby at Oopsla 2007. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla conference, or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East.